Chapter Seven of Daylight Land by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Seven: A Jolly Camp at Rush Lake. Nature's prime favorites, we the pelicans, high-fed, long-lived, sociable, and free. Heavens! exclaimed Mr. Pepperell. Judge, look at those prairie chickens. We had stepped from the cars at Winnipeg, and as we struck the platform we found ourselves in front of a heap of grouse, a hundred in number it may be, big, fat birds, such as make man thankful he was born with a stomach. The judge looked at the birds. There was a wistful look in his eyes. His lips moved as if gamey flavor were already in his mouth. He rolled his eyes towards me longingly and queried, Where did these birds come from? From southern Manitoba. I answered promptly. They are as thick as grasshoppers there. The man from New Hampshire had been fumbling at the birds as if examining their condition, and when he lifted one, lo, there was a tag tied to its foot, and on the tag was penciled, Colonel Goff, New Hampshire. One of my birds, by gosh, said the colonel. Clean from your farm, eh, colonel? exclaimed Mr. Pepperell. Certainly, returned the colonel. Flew straight to this platform and dropped dead. Knew I was to be here. I'll eat him tonight. And he passed the bird in under his arm between his coat and his vest. My conscience, my conscience, groaned the judge as if wrestling with an internal enemy. The gods have burdened me with a conscience. My bird, my bird, returned the New Hampshire man, groaning in imitation of the judge. The gods have burdened me with a bird and he started for the car. "'Hello, old boy!' screamed a voice, and a flat hand smote me on the back. "'Do you remember the turkeys in Texas?' "'Yes,' I answered as I wheeled, "'and that the best snapshot in the New York gun club, Jack Osgood by name, couldn't hit a turkey gobbler at fifty feet as he went through the live oaks.' And we shook hands, laughed, and roared, as two sportsmen will when they suddenly meet, with years between them and some ludicrous happening.' "'Jack Osgood, Judge Doe, Mr. Pepperell,' I said, briefly introducing them. "'We shot turkeys together in Texas,' I added. "'He shot them, and I shot at them,' replied Jack. "'I never shall forget how I felt when the first gobbler got up ahead of my gun. "'I shook till my bones rattled. "'It took me two days to sober down and get steady.' "'Did you shoot those birds there, Mr. Osgood?' asked the judge. "'Certainly, every one of them, sir,' answered Jack. I dropped them four bags. There are ninety-seven, all told. If you want any, help yourselves, gentlemen. You'll find them good broilers. Heaven has not forsaken me, exclaimed the judge as he fingered the breast of a chicken, and liking the one he had so well, he took another. I'm not mean enough to look a gift horse in the mouth, judge, said Mr. Pepperell as he carelessly picked up three chickens. Where are you going, Jack? I queried. I'm going to Rush Lake after canvas backs, replied Osgood. "'What did you say, Mr. Osgood?' exclaimed the judge. "'What was the name you gave the ducks?' "'Canvasback, sir,' answered Jack. "'Gentlemen,' exclaimed the judge, "'I don't know how you feel, but I'm tired of traveling. "'This steady rolling shakes up a man of my age terribly. "'If Mr. Osgood will permit, I will go to Rush Lake with him. "'I feel that my system requires several days of absolute rest.' "'I dare not to leave you to go alone, Judge,' cried the man from New Hampshire, who was leaning from the platform of the car listening to what the judge said. 
Your conscience. Think of your conscience. Where did you get those two chickens? He glared at the judge enviously. And so it was arranged that we should all drop off at Rush Lake and have a few days with the canvasbacks and the white pelicans. We started out under the guidance of Osgood to get together our supplies. Ten years ago, remarked Mr. Pepperell, there were not a hundred white people here. At the forks of the river was Old Fort Gary, a Hudson Bay Company's post, and that was all. Today there is a city solidly built of brick and stone with a population of thirty thousand. It is necessary to see such changes with our eyes to appreciate them. It looks to me as if it had a future, said the judge, a great future. Decidedly, answered Mr. Pepperell. This is to be the prairie city, as Vancouver is to be the coast city of the country. The one will be built up by the inland trade, the other by its foreign commerce. Winnipeg will have rivals to the west, Mr. Pepperell, and don't you forget it in your figuring, observed the man from New Hampshire. I don't forget it, returned Mr. Pepperell promptly. I have counted on it. But Winnipeg has the start, a good strong start, over every rival to the west or east. Her thoroughfares are constructed, her system of lighting in operation, her waterworks provided, her public buildings erected, her wholesale and retail houses established, and her trade connections with the east and south made, Colonel Goff. A financier knows the value of such a start. Winnipeg has got her grip on the country round about her, and it will take an earthquake or a cyclone to loosen it. And so, like the active-minded Americans, while buying our supplies and getting together our outfit for the camp at Rush Lake, we talked of the future of Winnipeg and figured on its changes. If there are prettier bits of water anywhere than can be found in these western prairies, they have not been discovered. A few are alkaline, but many are fresh, and the prairies roll down in billows of grass to their beaches or flatten to the water through the acres of sedge. Rush Lake is well named, and yet it is not swampy or sluggish, for miles of its shoreline are embanked, and its waters are lively. From these banks the prairie rolls away in waves of fine verdure, and the eye sweeps unimpeded to the rim of the horizon. Our tent was pitched on a bank which brought the lake in full view, and over it the air moved in cool, easy currents. It was an ideal camp for a sportsman, for the free water was speckled with ducks, and the vast reedy spaces were alive with their movements. Canvasbacks, mallards, teal, black ducks, wood ducks, curlew, the big plover, and those wonders of the western land, the huge snow-white pelicans, whose wings have the stretch of a white-headed eagle's, and which float on the water with the slow, stately movement of swans, all were here, and in numbers beyond counting. On the prairie were coyotes, gray wolves, and antelopes. What more could a sportsman desire than such a camp and such game? Heavens! cried the judge. Was there ever such music? And he tumbled off his cot. A chorus for the saints, replied a New Hampshire man as he emerged from the folds of a buffalo robe in which he had bestowed himself near the tent-pins, and in less than a minute we were all standing outside of the tent contemplating our toilet, the judge with one boot in his hand and Mr. Pepperell discreetly wrapped in a blanket. <laughs> what a morning! The sun had not yet risen. One great star, a globe of liquid luminance, hung in the eastern sky. Along the horizon's edge ran a line of rose, 
above it were the shifting splendors of an oriental ruby the western heavens were still blue-black the prairie grasses were wet with dew and every drooping point sparkled like a gem the air was motionless and the lake from shore to shore was blanketed with white fleece and out of this fleece what noises came the flutter of plumes the spatter of playful ducks the pipe of curlew and plover the whiz of passing wings the voice of pelican the honk of geese the low soft sound of feathery life seeking feeding greeting filled all the air with murmurous musical sounds oh the glory of the world the glory of the world cried the judge as he gazed at the beauty and breathed the pure air in oh the glory of the ducks the glory of the ducks said the man from new hampshire as he listened to the sounds in the fog and thought of the broiled grouse that he ate for his supper osgood i said did a sportsman ever hear sweeter music never he responded unless it was a gobble of wild turkey as he strutted in front of his harem in some little glade among the cedar groves of the guadalupe is that coffee i smell queried mr pepperell suddenly it is by the powers exclaimed the judge and he dove through the door of the tent to complete his toilet that judge of ours said the man from new hampshire pointing to the door of the tent as he disappeared that judge of ours is a good deal of a poet but he has a well-balanced mind notwithstanding cook called the judge as he thrust his head out of the tent in the direction of the kitchen cook how soon will breakfast be ready in a few minutes mars judge in a few minutes responded the darkey julius caesar bismarck thundered the judge at what hour i say will you have breakfast ready for the lord mars judge promptly replied the ebony cross between ancient and modern greatness how do you suppose this nigger knows oh lord groaned the judge and his voice sounded as if it came from an empty cellar why do you move so carefully asked mr pepperell of the new hampshire man as ready for breakfast we went out of the tent shh returned the man from new hampshire if i don't move carefully the judge will hear me rattle with the dawn the lake shore near us had been embellished with a most romantic arrival a tribe of the blackfeet nation had come from the plains and gone into camp twenty-six large fine-looking tepees were stretched in a row to the east and north of our tent and some hundred and fifty indian men women and children were grouped around their camp kettles or moving about at their work here and there stood knots of men picturesquely draped in their blankets of high colors these indians were not vagabonds nor sots they were not bloated with liquor nor broken down with disease they were not dirty or repulsive to the eye they were fine healthy-looking people the men were tall and well-formed the boys sprightly in their motions the squaws did not look like drudges or human beasts of burden but like women of bronze skin living the life and doing the work of aboriginals they were all comfortably clothed and some of the girls were finely formed and unmistakably handsome there was not a half-breed among them it was a camp of full-blooded indians of the plains gentlemen said the judge if i ever lose my appetite i shall come to rush lake if canada ever loses rush lake then retorted the man from new hampshire i shall know where to look for it and he measured with his eye the front elevation of the judge gentlemen 
exclaimed the judge, ignoring the remark of the New Hampshire man. I wish it understood that this is a camp of sportsmen, and not pot-hunters. We are not here to make money, but to spend it. Not to supply the market, but ourselves with game. And therefore I move that we act like true sportsmen, and fix the size of our bags each day by mutual agreement. Friends should be remembered, continued the judge, and I suggest that each man be permitted to kill a certain number of ducks for himself, and a certain number to send to his friends. I move, suggested Mr. Pepperell, that every man be permitted to shoot twelve ducks and two pelicans during the week for himself. What about Plover and Curlew? queried Osgood. They don't count, decided the judge. You can bag all you can. Don't count, exclaimed the man from New Hampshire. That decision wouldn't stand a minute in highest court. I know a man in Texas who started in to eat fifty-six curlew, and when he got to the forty-second he dropped. Stop right there, sir, said the judge, shaking his finger at the colonel. Stop right there. The court hasn't forgotten your story of the Japanese screen. The number being settled that each man may shoot for himself, it only remains for us to decide how many he may be allowed to shoot for his friends. I would like to shoot a dozen a day for my friends, said Mr. Pepperell. The station isn't a mile away, and we can start them east every evening. That'll do for me added osgood cheerfully if it gets a little dull i'll try my hand at the antelopes and the wolves i'm not a shotgun man and will live on your bounty i remarked if you give my winchester a pelican each day and full swing at the wolves and coyotes i shall have a royal time well sir queried the judge of the colonel how many do you want for your friends i haven't an enemy in the state said the man from new hampshire and by the last census "'Colonel Goff,' interrupted the judge sternly, "'the court will not be trifled with. "'How many do you want for your friends?' "'Well, as I was saying,' said the colonel, "'I haven't an enemy in the state of New Hampshire, "'and the last census fixed the population at 350,000. "'Of this number only 70,000 are voters. "'I shouldn't give a duck to a Democrat if I died for it, "'so we can chalk off—' "'Colonel Goff,' thundered the judge, the court does not propose to sit on this camp stool all day, and if you don't come down— Oh, very well, very well, cried the colonel. It is not good politics to leave out New Hampshire in any close election, but let her go. Outside of New Hampshire I have only one friend. I picked him up this morning. He's herding the Indian ponies out there, and he looked to me as if he hadn't had a duck for some time, and that he would prove mighty elastic when he got duck— "'Gentlemen!' exclaimed the judge, interrupting the colonel. "'Our friend from New Hampshire has suggested a most amiable sentiment of the question. "'We will abide by our ruling, and the colonel shall be free to shoot as many ducks as he can for the Indians.' "'And with this decision we all arose, well pleased, and went for our guns. "'Now the man from New Hampshire was a wag, dry as seasoned hickory. "'Luck invariably assists such a man when bent on a joke.' and luck had assisted this grey-headed joker to such an armament as many readers of this book, I am sure, never saw. In a gun-shop at Winnipeg he had found an old-fashioned flintlock, known among our forefathers as a king's arm. It was of monstrous bore, thick at the breech and thin at the muzzle, with a strong stock mounted heavily in solid brass and an iron ramrod. The flint was half the size of a small fire shovel, while the pan was as large as an iron spoon, 
It was a venerable relic of former days and men, a murderous old gun, if you had shot and powder enough to charge it properly, and if you could ever get it off, but most eccentric and unreliable in its habits. The gun was apparently strong as ever, and as to its barrel and good repair, for the lock was lashed to its place by stout leather thongs, and unless the powder was coarse, the grains would leak through between the barrel and the pan into the recess where the springs and tumbler are located. The spectacle which the colonel presented when he stood equipped for the day, a big powder horn with a wooden stopple under his elbow, one pocket sagging with shot, the other stuffed full of oakum and paper for his wadding, the old gun in his hand, and a white bell-crowned hat on his head, which he had found by the same luck that got him his gun, was of so funny a sort that the camp roared with laughter. But the colonel took the jokes that we fired at him with imperturbable gravity, and we knew that if ever he did get that old gun off, and there were any ducks in the landscape within range, the Indian encampment would be fed full to feasting. In less than an hour each of us had his bag except the colonel. For some unexplainable reason, as he stated, he had been unable to get the old thing off. But he assured us he had confidence in his peace, and that sooner or later the world would hear from him. There was not one of us that did not admire both his courage and his perseverance, for he stood bravely up behind the old mortar, and pulled the trigger at every duck that came by. Lord, said the judge, what would become of the colonel if the old thing should go off? So he patiently trailed in the rear of his canoe in response to the colonel's exhortation to stand by the institution of the fathers. Advice and interrogations were rained upon him. The judge wanted to know if he had loaded every time he snapped and if he knew how many chargers there were in the piece. Mr. Pepperell inquired if he had powder enough to keep on priming for the rest of the day. And Osgood suggested that we each take our turn and spell him at pulling the trigger. Meanwhile, as we had stopped shooting, the ducks had settled thicker and thicker, till the water was black and the sedge was full of feathers, and the colonel worked away at the ancient bit of machinery with redoubled vigor. He who says that the age of miracles has passed is an idiot, for the old gun finally went off at an opportune moment, too, for the canoe was wedged into the sedge, and the colonel well-braced, and the air filled with ducks. Granted the air black with birds, an old king's arm charged with a grill or more of coarse shot, and a man from New Hampshire squinting grimly over the breech-pin, and there could be but one result, or rather three results. The gun jumped out of his hands, the colonel sat down on the boat with a crash, and the ducks fell by the dozen. It was a monstrous bang in truth, and the colonel took the honors of the day and week. For while he averaged less than five shots a day, still the totals beat every gun in the crowd. One thing is sure, the Indians who camped with us on Rush Lake that week will never forget the old flintlock gun or the man from New Hampshire, nor shall we who were there ever forget the sport and the fun. End of chapter 7